This is the Business Storytelling Show with Christoph Trapp. Name a top 20 storytelling podcast and a top 5% podcast globally. Christoph chats with thought leaders and experts to share tips and tricks that can help you tell your company's stories better to drive business results. Available wherever you listen to podcasts, live streamed on major social media channels, and part of the DB&A television network, available on most U.S. television sets and streaming on Roku and Amazon Fire. Here's Christoph with today's episode. Let's go. Hey, business storytellers, let's go. That's right. And today we want to talk about the teenage years of brands because some brands behave like teenagers. I'm a dad. I have a teenager at home and I know how that looks. So we have the author of Teenage Waste Brands on the show today, Evelyn Starr. Um, I think, as is often the case, I ran across her on Twitter and then I got her book. Uh, it wasn't super expensive. I think it was one of those 99 cent deals. And with the free credits, I don't think I paid anything for it. But definitely a good read. Teenage Way Brands, how your brand can stop struggling and start scaling. Let's get her out of the green room here. Evelyn, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm really glad to be here. Really appreciate you making the time. So tell me about what prompted you to write the book, and maybe more importantly, what's a teenage brand or waste brand? The um, impetus for writing the book was that uh, the first 10 years or so of my business, I'm I'm self-employed as a marketing consultant, I had many clients who had come to own their businesses, not through a business education, but through family businesses, or they were inventors who had ideas, or they just somehow came to the helm of the business without a business background or without a marketing background, and they would hire me and then sheepishly admit that they weren't doing any marketing or they'd done very little um, and that they actually hated it. It kept falling to the bottom of their to-do list. And when I probed a little further, it was less hatred than fear that what they would do wouldn't result in any sort of benefit, that they would invest their time and money and have nothing to show for it. So uh, this book is my attempt to explain brands and the particular stage that they go through, um, and adolescence, I call it, um, in a way that is more intuitive and less jargon-filled. Well, more intuitive and less jargon-filled. It's interesting. So talk about your comment on um, they have nothing to show for. I mean, I have to admit, definitely a trigger phrase right there. And I'll give you an example. Um, my Even my blog, right, AuthenticStorytelling.net, which I don't want to call it a passion project. I mean, it, it is and it isn't. Um, but, you know, it's pretty successful for really just something I use to share some knowledge here and there. And, you know, it drives drives business, even though that's not my – I'm not a self-employed um, consultant. That's not my main work, right? But my point is – it didn't show me any results at all in the first year. Well, I don't, I don't know what the timeline is, but early on, right? But now it's like it's driving results right and left. So it, why do people keep saying that? I mean, I don't, I don't get it, but maybe I'm more patient. I don't know. Well, you know, if you don't have a marketing background and you don't understand the cumulative nature of the different marketing things that you do and and you don't have confidence that you're doing the right things those are all 
deterrence to even embark upon the marketing or spend the money. So, um, but you also asked me what a teenage brand is. Um, mm -hmm. and that brand, teenage brand, or what I call brand in adolescence, is a brand that had a good initial run, a lot of momentum, and then several years in or some time into it, all of a sudden it stalls. Sometimes it plateaus, sometimes it declines a little bit, and the things that were working to grow it initially are no longer working and people get stuck. And then they have to do something else. So is it, um, do you really have to, I mean, do people, do brands wait until they see those symptoms or are brands um, catching them earlier and fixing things or growing up quickly or or do they learn as they go, which is how I learned as a teenager, right? Instead of learning from somebody else's mistake, I, I might as well just make it myself. Well, just like the sort of population of teenagers, there's a spectrum of brands. Some of them are um, ahead of their, the, the curve and they plan for this or they uh, sort of avoid getting stuck because they understand a number of the pillars that make for a good brand foundation. But other brands, especially those where there isn't um, somebody either in marketing or in business who understands the kinds of things you need to put in place to grow uh, consistently, um, those are the ones that get stuck. And I, I always think it's super hard to actually figure out when to when to realize things. I mean, I think I said this to a marketing person here before in, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I said, you know, it'd be nice to know that you're living the good times while you're living the good times, right? Or do you know what I mean? Or like um, you have to get out of the gutter. Like it would be nice for you to realize to get out of the gutter while you're in the gutter, not, you know, when you hit the wall down the road, whenever that might be. Now, um, I don't think I've heard the term that you used before, or even the comparison to an adolescent brand. I mean, how did you, like, did it just kind of strike you one day, like that's what it is, or how did you come up with that? Well, it actually did strike me one day. It was uh, somewhere around 2011, early 2011, where I had been struggling for a while because I had taken time off to focus on my husband as a client as he was starting up his own business and help him build his brand from scratch. And when I came back to my business and needed to refill my pipeline, I found it difficult to describe what I did in a succinct fashion and to differentiate myself and make a case for why they should hire me over other marketing consultants, which felt a lot, you know, the cobbler's shoeless children, right? You know, as a marketer, I should be able to do this. So I knew that I needed a niche and I was really wondering why it was so hard. And as I spoke to other business owners who had started their business in the late 1990s and early 2000s, there were a whole group of us who were stuck like this. And so one night I thought, wow, this really feels like an identity crisis, like what I had in high, in high school. And then I thought, hmm, I wonder if brands have an adolescence like humans. And that was the beginning of all of this exploration, which I've been doing for years now. Very, very interesting. And so um, one of the things you talk about is, I don't remember what you call it exactly, maybe um, chief brand builder or something like that. But the people who start a company, they have to be involved, right? They can't just, I mean, I see it all the time, honestly. Um, you, you know, some they start a, somebody starts a company, and then the second they hire a marketing team, they go, "Oh, you guys just own the brand now. I'm not involved." But you know, they started the company. They have the vision. They have the stories. They have the 
what makes us unique? I mean, it just drives me crazy. And don't get me started, Evelyn, please stop me. I'm gonna go down this rabbit hole. When, when companies hire marketing teams or especially content marketing teams and they say, go create some content, everything is content. You gotta be more specific. What's unique about us? What's different about us? So talk about that concept of having the people at the top be involved. Yeah, I mean, it's their baby. It's their, they're the ones who, like you said, started with the vision. Um, a lot of times, founders of companies had this problem they couldn't find a solution to, so they created their own. And so they're the chief enthusiastic cheerleader, leader, visionary, and it's their story that starts the company and that actually probably leads the content in the beginning, right? Because your prospects can really associate if the person who founded the company said, I had the problem you had and here's how I solved it and this is how it's working for us, you know? Um, so they really need to be involved and, and you know brands are not the purview just of marketing departments everybody's involved in the brand and the brand guides your entire business and so to relegate it to one department is to cheat yourself of the benefits of having everyone involved well one of the ways one of the reasons why i really love live streaming like this i mean certainly you know we met on twitter and and this is we're not really working on a project you're just a guest on my show. But when I'm working on a project, talking to you know somebody in the company, I always have to interview them. I have to talk to them. What's your unique angle? What's different? Even if I'm, I don't really do much ghostwriting, honestly, but even if I'm ghostwriting it for you, if I don't hear your story, if I don't hear your perspective, I, I don't have a chance to make it work because I, I can't just make it up. Um, so, but why do founders or executives, why do they step out? Is it because, I mean, I have a friend who actually runs a very successful company. And when he first started it, like many, many years ago, he was really in the weeds. Do you know what I mean? Like all the time. And, and then as they build the company, they, you know, he says, I can't be in the weeds for every division. It's impossible. And right. so he had, he had to step out, right? So is it because it's so black and white and they either have to be in the weeds or they're just doing something else or why, how, how do we get them to help us through, adult, uh, through our teenage years like parents maybe should help their kids? Well, actually, that's exactly the, the space that this book covers. And what happens is in the beginning, you can be in the weeds because you could probably see everyone who's working for your company and involved in the company in the same room, right? It's a small team. You're lean and mean. You're bootstrapping. As your company grows, you can't be involved in every individual decision, but you want the brand to reflect the way that you want things done, the values that you have the personality of the brand that resonates with your customers and you want it to stay true to the purpose and the reason that you started the company, right? The, the problem that you solve. So that as you add products and as you add people, you're still all working as a team going in the same direction. And so the book talks about these points where you run into trouble, where all of a sudden, if you haven't put these things into place, if you haven't written down your purpose, so that everyone can understand it. If you haven't agreed upon the brand attributes, which makes the personality of the brand and sets the tone and the voice of the brand, if you haven't codified your values so that everyone knows how they're expected to behave on behalf of the brand and, and, and what do you want it to stand for, if you haven't done those things and, and some more that are in the book, 
then you're going to have a really hard time keeping everyone going in the same direction and working synergistically. Yeah, and I, I do. I'm a big fan of writing things down, but also you know writing them down in a meaningful way. And it was uh, Tara Hunt's company. I still should put the thing back within reach, but her company put together this this uh, card game, and you can come up with the words that you want to use for your company. And what I like about that game, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it's not in the carousel on Amazon Live either today. But basically, it has saved words, it has aspirational words, and it has negative words. And every word I threw around, this is Mr. Authentic Storyteller here, right? She says, yeah, that's a save word. That's a save word. That's a save word. So even I was a lot safer than I intended to be. Now, Evelyn, I have to be honest with you. I don't typically like when a writer, you know, really carries through, um, you know, a comparison. I mean, but, but, I, but I liked it in your book. I mean, like the whole teenage comparison, like sometimes, you know, I roll my eyes a little bit when I read some of the content, but in your book, I didn't roll my eyes once and I really enjoyed it. I mean, you even talk about the, the whatever it is, eight different things um, that can help you understand if you're an adolescent, maybe you can talk about that, but you even talk about oversleeping, which is like, seriously, my teenager, that's, she sleeps like all the time, it seems. Um, so talk about, um, what has first of all, what has been the reaction of staying with that theme? Do people really enjoy? It? Does it help them remember things better, or what's what have people said? Well, so people relate very easily because all of us have had our own adolescence, and a lot of us are parenting adolescents or or have done that already. And so the different symptoms that I talk about, identity crises, running with the wrong crowd, oversleeping, suffering from fear of missing out, all of those things are very relatable because we've all lived it or we've seen our kids live it. And so it's not hard to make the jump from the symptom that I'm talking about to what's going on in the brand and how to um, overcome it. So and the, the reaction to the book and the analogy has been very strong. I'm, I'm so flattered and so excited about it. And um, the other thing that's been really strong, I have to tell you, is that people seem to talk about how much they enjoyed the stories in the book and how much fun it was to read because it wasn't just straight marketing jargon. There's a lot of analogies, there's a lot of stories, and there's some cultural things that I pull in there that people can relate to. I had one person who endorsed my book said to me, oh, I so loved it that you have High School Musical in there. <laughs> so, um, so those things, uh, I wanted it to be fun to read because again, I'm writing for these people who used to roll their eyes and say, I didn't want to do marketing. It seems very foreign to me. I needed it to be very accessible. Yeah, very, very interesting. So um, how does a brand oversleep? Like, let's walk us through that. What does that even mean? Like, how do you oversleep as a brand? So if you are in that stage that you were just describing, that you wish you knew when things were going well, when they were going well, if your company is growing at a fairly steady rate or you're happy with the cash flow that's coming in, like Blockbuster was from their stores for a long time, you may not really worry about keeping up with the latest trends in your industry. You may not be as attentive to what your competitors are doing. You may not look at um, over... Um, trends that are in the environment um, and in just among the population that are going to affect your brand. And then if you continue to oversleep, you know, your brand maybe will start to um, go down, decline a little bit, 
it takes a lot to wake a brand and if you wait too long you could be too far behind the eight ball and lose it <laughs> oh my god it takes a lot to wake up a teenager isn't that the truth i mean it is very much the truth so uh, that's an interesting comment because so when 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 you start talking about you know a brand that's growing up i think a lot of people i don't know i mean i did at least i thought oh like a new company right like a startup or whatever but i know a lot of established companies that oversleep all the time and you know they don't they don't bring in the right people or this is not even a joke evelyn i worked with a team let's see 4 years ago and they were still Hang, uh, walking around the little baggies, you know, to check off who edited a piece of uh, an article, which, like, that's seriously oversleeping, right? Because use Word documents with track changes, for example, amongst other technology tools. So, but it's not just new companies, right? It's, it could be all kinds of companies. Well, and in fact, the companies, a lot of the companies that I'm talking about fall into this phase eight, 10, 12, even 25 years in, um, because you can ride your initial momentum and a good solution for a long time. Usually what happens is, you know, it's like the concept of inertia, some sort of outside force acts on it, either there's a technological development or there's a change in consumer attitudes or, um, well, so let me give you an example because I think um, listeners will have an easier time. Um, I don't know if your listeners know Zagat's, but Zagat's was, a, um, and, and it still is to some degree, a, a restaurant review company. They were the original group to start um, aggregating um, diners reviews as opposed to uh, critics, food critics or other chefs or something. They were the first ones to hand out a survey to their friends, get their ratings of a restaurant and put it together. And originally the first time they put it together, it was a single sheet. Um, it was Nina and Tim Zagat who had heard from their friends complaints that, you know, there weren't a good way to find out what, um, which restaurants were really good because the food critics criteria were not their criteria. Um, and so they started producing these, they used to call them the Burgundy Bible, these um, small books that people could carry with them to um, different cities when they went to visit and look up the restaurants and get a feel for which ones that might appeal to them most. And so they really took off for a long time. And when the internet came along, they struck deals with CompuServe and Prodigy really early on. Um, but they were fearful that they would cannibalize their print sales. So a few years in, they put their content behind a paywall and they kept it there and kept it there and kept it there. So this is oversleeping to me because I don't think that it was actually hurting their print sales, but because there's, their content was behind a paywall, Yelp could get traction, you know, and um, uh, Chowhound could get traction and a bunch of other places that had no paywall um, suddenly got quite a bit of following and a lot of reviews. And now Zagat's, because they weren't in the game before, has a lot of competition they could have squelched or they could have led. And so eventually they ended up selling the company to Google, which did nothing with it, more oversleeping. And now they're a shadow of themselves. They had to reduce their print to the point where they weren't printing any guides. They had, I think, 17 at their height. Um, and, um, you know, at the end, they were just printing the New York one. They stopped. And then they were bought by uh, another company. And uh, they're trying to start them up again. But starting up a brand that's been that dormant um, and hasn't been taken care of is a lot more expensive 
and keeping pace with what's going on in the moment. Well, I mean, that's the story of anything that's printed. I think that's that's a recurring theme we're hearing a little bit. I mean, even, you know, if you think about print magazines or, or even newspapers to an extent, right, they all made a lot of money because it, they, there was a lot of money. And I don't know about them, but I'm just saying in publishing, there used to be a lot of money in printing things. It's really hard, you know, to move into the, uh, into the digital realm only. Um, so, but teenagers oversleep, and then maybe they don't for a little while, and then at some point you oversleep again. Now, you know what? Let's not talk about oversleeping anymore. Give me a couple other examples of what um, what, what are some of those signs. So, um, brands that suffer from fear of missing out are the brands that hesitate to declare a niche and differentiate themselves from their competitors. They feel compelled to list every benefit that their competitor has because they're afraid if they don't, their prospects won't even consider them. When in fact, the opposite is true. You put a stake in the ground and say, here's what we stand for, here's the audience we're serving. Then they get a reputation for serving that audience and it, they act as a magnet for people who are in that group and they can grow their company comfortably. And the reason that people uh, particularly business owners suffer from FOMO, fear of missing out, is that they're afraid that putting a stake in the ground and declaring a niche will limit their um, potential. And I just want to share that, you know, that Jeff Bezos, when he started Amazon, went just with books. He wanted to create an everything store, but he knew he needed to start with one product. He chose books. And four years in, before he had let any other product on his site, he, they were breaking in $203 million just on books. So you can run really far on a niche if you set it up correctly and if you become known for it. So how do, how do people know that it's the right niche and how do they know? I mean, do they sometimes have to change and pivot maybe what, what niche they're going after? Is that part of it? I mean, you know, I mean, I want it to be, I guess I'm a bad example, but some people want to be firefighters. And by the time they get around to, you know, age 18, they become journalists or something. I mean, is that part of growing up as well? It is. It is. And sometimes when business owners start a company, they have a particular purpose in mind. And once they're in business for a while, they get feedback from their customers or requests from their customers and find that their strength lay somewhere other than their original area. So I don't know if you'd call it a pivot or an evolution to another place, but the reason that a lot of companies don't declare a niche until they're in adolescence is they need time to do that exploration, to figure out what, what's the talent that they have on board, what can they execute well, and what's resonating with their customers. Well, and you know, the last part, you know, I was just getting ready to say plus the customers, and then you said it before I could open my mouth, but that's exactly right. What are people relating to? I mean, some of my first messaging projects, I guess, for lack of a better term, I mean, people didn't relate to the terminology, right? People didn't get it. And then I changed the terminology and, and basically it worked because now they could relate to it. Who should read the book, Evelyn? Well, a business owners should read the book, but and anybody who's in the uh, a part of a brand team, especially if the brand team feels like the business isn't growing at a rate that they feel it has the potential to, because there are questions at the beginning of every chapter that will help 
the reader say, oh yeah, this, this applies to me or it doesn't apply to me. And while I would love for everybody to read the whole book, I also know that if you are having a problem and you figure out where the solution is, just go long and deep on that chapter and, you know, and, and fix the problem. Um, so um, business owners and brand team members. And then I would also say, because I know you have a lot of people in your audience, that content storytellers will find a lot of story examples in this book. If they're interested in looking at different ways of telling a, uh, telling a story, um, I've got um, some case studies, I've got some analogies, um, and I've also done it in a way that's low on jargon, which I think is the way that content is moving. The less, um, the easier you make it for someone to consume, the more likely they're going to keep consuming your content. I, no argument from me there at all. I mean, you got to make it easy for people to consume it. No jargon. And of course, you know, if a chapter isn't relevant to you, why do we want them to read it anyways, right? right. Skip to a chapter that is. So I think that's fantastic. I definitely recommend it. Teenage Waste Brand, How Your Brain Can Stop Struggling and Start Scaling. Evelyn Starr. Evelyn, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time and expertise. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Please rate and review our show on your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to share this episode with your networks. We appreciate you. Until next time, let the best stories win. Thank you.